Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Dorothy's Place. I'm uh, Elias Krim. I am here with my co-host, Pete Davis. Hey, Pete. Hello. Glad to be here. And we are talking to a kind of a distant neighbor. Michael Strode lives in the city of Chicago, maybe an hour away from my front door. I'm always happy it's so close. And Mike is a community activist, a writer, a thinker, a man of many parts, actually. But I wanted to bring him on the program uh, and talk a little bit about the range of things that he and some other people are doing in, in the new Chicago, this new thing that is happening. And that is part of what I hope our conversation would be about. But Mike, you're not from Chicago. Tell us a little bit about your background and how you uh, landed in Chi-Town. Uh, sure. Um, so I was originally actually born in Chicago, but I relocated uh, very young, you know, around age five to uh, near New Orleans and Kenner City. Huh. And um, yeah, and so I grew up in Kenner City, um, you know, and, and essentially it's just kind of a small, sleepy southern town in Jefferson Parish, which is a pretty large parish down there. Um, I, you know, I, I spent my formative years there, um, left after high school to go along the East Coast in D.C. and Philadelphia, um, Charleston, you know, and do it the AmeriCorps and Triple C. And um, then after my time in AmeriCorps, I, uh, I came back to Chicago because by that time, both my parents had relocated here. And so, uh, you know, came here, planned on stopping in Chicago for a very brief period before I went back to New Orleans. And, you know, I call it shipwreck Chicago. You just kind of came here and you never left. So uh, that's, that's uh, how we ended up here. Cool. Cool. Um, <clears throat> let me ask you about, um, well, this is something that I think a lot of people might be curious about if they're not keeping up closely with Chicago politics. There are some new things going on with the, the recent election. G give us kind of like your sketch of what do you think is underway in this new kind of political situation in Chicago and also new kind of community developments and stuff like that, kind of big, big picture. Uh, the election and also the teacher strikes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. Um, well, you know, the, the, yeah, there's, there's certainly lots of interesting things happening in Chicago. Um, I was at an event recently, you know, where, um, where the, the subject of Chicago organizing history came up and, you know, and, and effectively, um, yeah, Chicago is, is, is one of the homes, you know, of sort of uh, community organizing. Certainly there yeah. were, were tangents happening elsewhere. And, you know, we know that emergence happens in multiple places at once. But, you know, Chicago is the home of a, a hotbed of activism. And so in terms of this last election, it, it was certainly a transformative election, electoral period um, in, in that, you know, effectively, we um, had been ruled for, de uh, you know, de a decade or two by one dynasty. And then, you know, we kind of had a few years off and then that dynasty returned. And what we expected and anticipated, uh, many of us, was that, you know, uh, that Rahm Emanuel would represent another dynastic period where effectively you just kind of get another decade of, of, of mayoral office by this figure. Um, but uh, he, he, was, he was such a... Um, um, he was such a challenging figure um, in, in many ways uh, that, that he drew the immediate confrontation of the organizing community in Chicago. Um, and, you know, they, they ousted certainly several of uh, a couple of his key figures and, and, you know, around his administration and around the state. Um, and then, you know, I mean, targeted him. And so 
you know, I, I, I definitely don't want to, you know, gloss over the fact that, you know, the, the electoral period we're in is not necessarily just sort of uh, by chance. It's, the, it's at root um, the result of, uh, of, you know, several organizations and, and, and lots, of, uh, lots, of, lots of activism on the ground um, that is kind of confronting the city with, you know, its inequity um, and, and sort of in, in the, the inequity, the inequality, um, the, the, you know, challenge of policies that actually impact the, the lives of people in, in um, working class communities and, you know, in communities that I certainly work most closely with being black communities. Um, so, you know, the, this, this sort of history is all kind of coming to a head in, in Chicago. And the teacher strike, you know, just represents yet another um, one of those periods. Um, so, uh, you know, there, there were there were lots of choices along on the mayoral slate uh, that, that came up, and um, you know, the one that won, um, you know, kind of some people were delighted to kind of see a, a figure um, representing this sort of uh, diverse background take that seat. Um, but others had already dealt with this uh, dealt with this person, this person by name being Lori Lightfoot. Um, had already dealt with this person on the police board. So um, there were lots of different, you know, ways that people felt about that it, the, the administration come in. And, um, you know, the, the confrontation by the, the teachers was just, you know, the, the sort of latest iteration of, of um, the Chicago Teachers Union being, you know, a, one of the critical organizing forces in the city, um, just ensuring that its, uh, its message, its magnitude, its impact, was uh, realized early on in this administration at the, the sort of height so that you don't get down the line and then you know you kind of have to negotiate against the powerful figure afterwards you know um, so I, I think that you know right now um, all of those forces are converging um, it, it's just it's another moment where you know your people are kind of buying for the political power that will govern the city going forward um, and you know we don't we, we, you know, I mean, people are challenging this because we don't want another strong mayor in office that we're effectively, um, that ends up being able to do whatever they choose to do um, without the, the authority and consent of the, the people that are being governed in the city. Yeah. Mike, you're very involved with this expression, the solidarity economy. But tell us a little bit about how you got hold of that idea and how is, you see it being translated down on the ground, you know, beyond the mayoral level, it's in the neighborhoods, right? That we're really talking about this tradition of activism and these new, new seeds that are sprouting. Tell us about that a little bit. Yes. Um, well, so just getting to uh, my activism, my involvement in the solidarity economy. Um, about two years ago, I initiated a process called the Colonel Collaborative, which you know I'll, I'll mm -hmm. explain more in depth a bit later, I suppose. But the Colina Collaborative is a time bank, and by time banking, I simply mean trading time as a currency, um, meaning that an hour of time invested in the time bank will earn you a time credit that you can then spend to purchase, you know, a purchase in quotes, you know, an hour of time from someone else um, for a service that you need. And that service can vary from, you know, a garage cleanup, a garage organizing, that, that service can, you know, be something like uh, just kind of, you know, help with uh, child's homework, that service mm -hmm. can be companionship, whatever it might be. Um, and so I initiated that project on the heels of another project that I was involved in, um, which, you know, I'll also elaborate on in a bit, but Black Oak Center and Healthy Food Hub. Um, and that, that project, the Black Oak Center Healthy Food Hub, 
was originated because we were trying to do two things. There were two ends of the pipeline uh, that we were trying to service. There were farmers in a township called Pembroke near Kankakee or Hopkins Park um, that did not really have a route to market. They, they could certainly bring their produce up to a farmer's market in the city, um, but you know, any farmer will tell you that a farmer's market is not the place to make money with your food because you, know, you get that food up here, um, you may not be able to sell all of it all, and then you may end up with food that you have to take back to the land or, or that you have to sell at a loss. Um, so it was a challenging market for a small farmer, like, you know, large ag farmers, they, they're fine. You know, they've got deals with Walmart and, you know, and Amazon and whomever else. Um, and so, but for a small farmer to kind of get to market, that's a great challenge. So the Healthy Food Hub was designed to create a route to market for those small farmers, but also to create a space where, where communities on the south and west sides of Chicago could add excess fresh produce, which is also another sort of challenging place, right? Mm -hmm. um, so the, the communities, um, have, they have money to spend, right? They, they have money to spend on food, you know, and food is a, a critical key part of their budget. It's not a part of the budget that you're going to reduce by any great measure, um, but they don't represent um, a place where, that, where, um, where, where these supermarkets can <clears throat> sell these high cost, you know, high quality, high end foods. Um, they represent a place where you want to buy the staples. You want to be able to purchase the staples, and they're going to regularly purchase those staples. So the stores in these communities have, uh, the larger stores have just kind of, you know, evacuated, divested from those communities, um, you know, and you have these areas where it's a tremendous kind of, you know, uh, slog to figure out, you know, where your store is or kind of have a store that is really serving the near community, you know, um, rather than having to travel longer distances to source. So the Healthy Food Hub wanted to create a, a way for those small farmers to get to market and for those uh, communities to access that fresh produce. And um, we, we did that successfully for about a 10-year period. Um, then there were some changes in terms of the space relationships that we had. Um, and at, that's when I was beginning to pick up on the, the time banking the, through the Coldenet Collaborative um, and develop that project as a way to incentivize people participating um, in projects that have a great social good but it may not have a strong economic draw. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, sort of the, 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 short, the short of the story is that um, my involvement with time banking led me to this notion of the solidarity economy huh. because the solidarity <clears throat> economy is a framework in which it's very mm -hmm. easy to explain time banking. Um, it, whereas, you know, if you're just kind of using time banking as its own thing, aside from this larger network of cooperative endeavors, this larger network of creating equity um, in communities, this larger network of, of building infrastructure whereby communities can, can improve themselves with the resources they have at their disposal, um, you know, then it, it, it's a little bit harder to do the time bank in isolation than it is to do it alongside helping people to think mm -hmm. about solidarity economy initiatives. Um, and so that, that's how I got involved in sort of the solidarity economy work that I'm doing. Um, and, and the Healthy Food Hub, you know, even though it's not in the, in the same form that it was before, it's still an idea that, you know, is rooted in this idea that communities um, should be self, that communities can self-provision and that communities have all of the tools at their disposal they need to, to live rich, um, mm -hmm. well, prosperous lives. You know? mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Pete, you and I have talked about time banking before, as you recall, I'm sure, right? Yes, it was uh, invented by, um, wasn't it No More Throwaway People, the co-production yeah. imperative? Yeah. Yes. The guy in D.C., the elderly guy in D.C. now, um, Edgar. Edgar Kahn. Yeah. Edgar Kahn, yes. 
Um, what I love, uh, I'd love to ask, a, you know, what I love about the solidarity economy and, and the work that you're doing and what I see in others who are doing this work, building worker cooperatives, community land trusts, community um, co-production uh, projects, is that you uh, put your time, energy, and creativity where your mouth is. It's You have a down payment on your vision by actually putting in the hard work of figuring out a positive alternative. Uh, it's, you know, it's, it's one, you know, anytime, the number one critique, you know, I'm part of kind of lefty politics circles and we give our dreams of what a socialist society will look like and everyone says, uh, you know, that won't work. <laughs> but what, and, you know, we say, well, it will work. <laughs> and, you know, we stop there. But what you are doing is you are showing that it will work by actually building uh, the future in your neighborhood. And I'd love to hear a little bit about what it's like to actually prefigure a positive alternative to show people a little taste of what the whole country could look like. Absolutely. Um, you know, I, I mean, I, I've only been re recently been privy to the writings of Eric Olin Wright. Um, you know, it, it wasn't someone whom I'd studied sort of in my, in my early, in earlier iterations of this work. But um, it's something that I was immediately drawn to when I, when I um, read both his Jacobin article, which I think at the time was um, how to be an anti-capitalist in the 21st century um, or today. And then now he has the, now the book, you know, uh, after his passing is released, how to be an anti-capitalist in the 21st century. And then prior to that, you know, there's the tech real utopias and, and certainly in, in uh, Wisconsin for several years doing the Envisioning Utopias project. Um, but you know, and one of the things, and the reason that I bring that up is because um, that's certainly a, a key part of the, the expression that he offers in his writings, which is that, um, look, you know, we, we've had, you know, several uh, runs and, you know, a decade, a century even, you know, I mean, certainly uh, not, well, yeah, we've had, we've had a, quite a century of, 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 you know, attempting this sort of smash capitalism model of socialism that says, you know, we have a rupture and a revolutionary overthrow. And then after that, the workers can take over and seize power and then you know we will have the socialist you know utopia or or, or prospect prospects uh that we're looking after but you know ultimately after this sort of century of of, of attempts at various iterations of disruption um maybe it's time for us to kind of you know um look a little bit differently at how we are using um and he kind of draws a, a um it's maybe a Venn diagram or sort of a, you know, a, a series of different ways that, you know, you can approach um, tackle, tackling the problem of capitalism. You know, one of them, of course, is that smashing capitalism. Um, you know, another is the escaping capitalism. Another is taming capitalism, dismantling capitalism, uh, eroding capitalism. And I think there's a sixth one that I'm, I'm missing at the moment, but um, resisting. Yeah, I think he said resisting capitalism or something like that. But... Um, so in, in sort of his, the end of his uh, sort of thesis around this, um, how to be an anti-capitalist, he ends up at the notion that, hey, maybe we should look at eroding capitalism as a way to think about how we're prefiguring the society that we are looking to live in, um, the, the sort of socialist vision that we're looking to kind of embody. And, you know, if you're eroding capitalism, you still have to use a few other tools. Dismantling and taming can be one of them. Um, taming being that, you know, we are going after policies right now that can change the rules of the system that we are in, um, you know, and, and 
So in, in Chicago, we got things like just cause for eviction. Um, you know, we, we've got other policies that are coming out around housing. We've got other policies that are coming out around um, potentially that are being fought for around the, the CBA or the Community Benefits Agreement for the Obama Center. Um, mm-hmm. And so those are ways that you can contain capitalism. Um, and then, then after that, you begin, you begin the process of thinking about how, if you have people in power, we've now got the socialist alderman, um, alder persons in, in, um, in the seat. And, hmm. you know, you start, <clears throat> absolutely, yeah, we've got, we got five of them, I think, at, at last count, five. the socialist caucus. Wow. Yes. Um, yeah, the, the democratic socialist, um, you know, helped to elect the, uh, hmm. those folks. But then you start to think about how do you use these elected officials to dismantle some of the, the, the inequitable systems that exist. And then, um, so those are two things that you're doing from the, the sort of governmental or the, the, the systems level. Um, but, you know, at the local level, inside of the community, you're thinking about eroding um, capitalism, which is that uh, how can we disrupt the ways that people think about value, think about money, think about exchange, um, think about economy, so that it doesn't look like every time we want to do something in our community, the only way to do it is to go to a foundation and get this grant. Mm-hmm. Or it doesn't look like every time we want to um, you know, make a transformation, the immediate thing we have to tackle is how do we move the monetary resources to do it, but how do we actually motivate the people resources? How do we engage the resources that exist at our community level? And then how do we compel um, people who may have more resources, you know, and more resources being like more time or more skills to become engaged and involved in our project in a deeper way. And in a way that's not just, you know, um, not just one-sided like the volunteer construct, you know, um, Edgar Cowan actually talks about this extensively, but, you know, the volunteer construct being one-sided, it means that I have a skill, you have a need, I'm coming to you because you have that need. And, you know, effectively what I get at the end is I get altruism. You know, I get the good feeling that I've done something beneficial for you who was, in, who, who was needy, but it doesn't mean that I've actually uh, related to you on an equal level. Mm-hmm. Um, and so time banking asks us to look at each other on an equal level, meaning that even though I might have an express need right now, and, you know, one of the things I always talk about in my time banking salons is, you know, um, like I have lots of socks with holes in them and I don't like to mend socks, but I also don't want to throw them away. And so, you know, if you have a skill with, with sock mending, I would love, you know, for you to kind of bring that skill to the time bank. And I would be happy to offer you, you know, um, my strategic planning insights or, you know, my computer consultation or, you know, my access to, to my AK Press and PM Press, you know, uh, friends, of, uh, friends membership, whatever, you know. Um, but there are things that I have, there are gifts that I can bring to the table um, that allow us to kind of re- re- relate to each other on an equal level and not just as, you know, someone with a with a, a gift and someone with a need and you know um but we have we can re- we can reciprocate and we can <clears throat> engage with each other in a different way interesting that's great you know i think you told me mike you were looking for a way to put together two things i'd never quite heard of in this way which is time banking plus community organizing how does that how does that work again well um so the, the way that I, I think about looking at t- time banking and community organizing, um, and, and ultimately, I, I don't think it's, it's so distant. It's perhaps that time banking has become isolated and has become something that if you're a radical, you know, yeah. time banking doesn't look or, or sound radical. It sounds kind it sounds of suburban like, oh, okay. or something. Yeah, yeah. Exactly, exactly. <clears throat> and, and, and for me, 
you know, time banking is it's it, time banking has been isolated in that place for several years. Um, but I'm trying to connect time banking to at, as a radical practice mm-hmm. because ultimately communities that that um, are marginalized have already been doing this type of deep cooperation, this type yeah. of mutual aid, this type of mutual benefit, and that that's where where you where you get the language, right? When you get to the language of mutual aid and mutual benefit, the anarchists are always talking about mutual aid and mutual yep. benefit, but yep. they never talk about time banking. So I'm I'm ultimately just trying to convert. I think we're convergent because if you look at anarchist history. Um, Josiah Warren, the Cincinnati Times store, um, you know, was 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 one of the earliest implementations of a time bank, um, where effectively he had labor notes in the store. Every product on the shelf um, actually had a labor hour assigned to it based upon how much wow. how much time it took to produce that thing. And huh. and then when you actually checked out at the store, even when the person was checking you out that time was factored into the price of your the, 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 the purchase that you were making. And so, you know, that, that store was, um, you know, very famous and, and very popular. And he ended up running the store successfully for two years. And then he just kind of, you know, decided he wanted to do something else. So he left and, you know, he, he, he connected with, you know, maybe an Owenite community, Robert Owens, you know, at the hmm. early history of cooperatives wow. um, and communalism. Um, mm-hmm. So, I mean, you know, all of this history is convergent and it's not like time banking are <clears throat> separate from cooperatives or separate from the solidarity economy. That's cool. It's just That's cool. that, you know, um, yeah, our current economic context encourages us to isolate these things and look at them as like separate discrete analytical entities when ultimately these are all practices that, you know, share, share a lineage, share a history. Very cool. Could I, uh, so I, I'm, I'm a big believer in experimentalism and not kind of judging things until they work. Um, but one semi-critical question about time banking that I just love to hear your thoughts on, because um, I think I asked this of Edgar Kahn a few years ago himself, um, and I, I don't remember what he said, but it's one question is, why is there a need to re- numericize kind of solidarity you know why not just say we should have mutual aid and we don't need to put a number on it and even though kind of a time economy is better than a money economy why even have kind of a ledger-based uh care system um and i'd love to hear your when people ask you that question what do you what do you tell them absolutely it, it is certainly a very common question and um, the way that the question usually uh, comes is that um, by putting a valuation on it, we're, we're effectively monetizing the, the value of um, the value of altru- altruistic time, right? So, you know, by putting, by putting a number on it, by attaching it to a time-based currency, we're, we're monetizing it. And I would argue back that the time is already monetized. Um, People are all, you know, in the current in current construct, um, providing services for free is already um, exploited in some ways. And and I would I would note that um, that certainly there are lots of people that don't have free time to offer. And so, by in the sense that you know you have people who can who do have the luxury of going to volunteer and going to give their time away freely. Um, sometimes that maybe they're being compensated by their job. Maybe they already have, you know, um, you know, additional wealth built up. And so they can just kind of take off and, you know, it doesn't hurt them or harm them. But, you know, if you have people who don't necessarily have time to give away and ultimately if they give away that time, 
um, they they don't know essentially they're, they're not actually being tied into a tribal community that will meet their needs if, if they fall down so they're, they're not certain that like you know if I volunteer my time you know with this nonprofit organization um, and you know I, I've given 10 hours to them and I fall on hard times it's not like I can go to them you know with these 10 hours and be like hey you know like I really need somebody to sit down with me for 10 hours and kind of help me to remap my life plan because maybe that's not even a service they offer and it's and you may not actually find find anyone in that organization that can connect you to someone else who has that offer so I'm arguing that you know the the, the sort of time banking um, is about figuring out how to create an infrastructure in which people can meet each other where we're at right now, because where we're at right now is that we already understand this exchange of value for value in some ways. We already understand these means of exchange. But in my, my own vision, um, and, and, and actually I'll, I'll relate it to the sort of story of the Cowrie Collective, which inspired the Colonet Collaborative. The Cowrie Collective in St. Louis um, started as a time bank, you know, maybe um, eight years ago, I want to say. And um, at this point, the Cowrie Collective has dissolved. But the relationships that it, it were established in the Cowrie Collective still exist. So ultimately, the time bank is really a practice space. It's about people practicing yeah, this yeah, act exactly. of engaging and building these relationships, <clears throat> engaging in the social exchange. And you may get to a point in the time bank where people stop logging hours, which is mm -hmm. very common, you know, because it's like, oh, I already know that this is my tribe. This is my family. These are my relationships. And then I know I can go here to meet my needs. And I don't necessarily need to log the hours because, you know, this favor is already known. They know me. And, and that's what we're trying, to, we're trying to do. We're trying to get to a place where people know each other as people who are giving people. And because they know that you are a giver, they're saying, they're going to say, you know what? I want to do something for you because you're always giving. You're always available. You're always there, at, you know, or you're there when we need you. Um, and, and, and you're trying to build these tribal communities and these spaces, you know, that actually know how to do this type of exchange. Yeah, that's cool. You know, you're making me think about the subject of regenerating neighborhoods and, and time banking is a practice, which if you keep practicing it, will, as you just described, pull you into neighbor, neighborhood building, neighborship, whatever the word might be. And you know what I'm thinking about is cultural memory here in Chicago of Bronzeville. Bronzeville is now, you know, it's kind of a museum district, I guess. It's also still a neighborhood that has come back. But, you know, I, I have read a little bit about the old Bronzeville, the, the sort of icon that people hold up. It's like the old Harlem, right? In the 20s, I'm talking about. Yeah. And... Um, Cornel West is quoting another author. I don't know exactly who it was, but I, I, I had this in my notes. And he's talking about the street life and the, the neighborhood feeling back 70 years ago. It's now, now actually about 90 years ago. We're talking about the 20s. When mm -hmm. this author said, you know, black communities were the most civilized and humane in America. They were caring, loving, self-respecting all the while behind the walls of apartheid had their own banks, own insurance companies, tons of businesses. You know, th this all continued until the depression hit, which is, as I understand it, what really, you know, hurt Bronzeville and Harlem and everywhere. I I'm sure Pete, DC had a neighborhood like this, right? Is this Anacostia or? I, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, well, actually the funny switch in DC was it used to be Georgetown 
Really? Um, and then moved to Anacostia. Yeah. Oh my God. Um, and now Georgetown is a very like waspy yep. uh, uh, yeah. uh, place. And so, um, yeah. So this is where we want to get back essentially. Right. I mean, we, some of this, some of this was working. People were making money. People not only own stuff, they had wealth. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's isn't that kind of the, the larger um, uh, sort of financial or, or economic uh, vision behind this. Yes, and, and I would I would argue even beyond them having wealth, they had solidarity, right? Yeah. Um, and, and I mean, solidar solidarity was the currency that allowed them to build that communal wealth, you know, because I mean, ultimately, this was, yeah. a, this was about a shared wealth and a shared prosperity that, that they had built up. And, you know, one of the things I would highlight is that I was listening to the Curious City podcast recently, and they had done um, a, a segment, you know, an 11-minute segment on Ida B. Wells. Huh. And they talked about Ida B. Wells' work. Ida B. Wells was, of course, you know, um, a very esteemed journalist, um, you know, uh, a black woman who had written, you know, um, historically about lynching mm -hmm. um, coming out of Memphis. Um, you know, she was run out of Memphis because effectively she had covered a lynching at something called the People's Grocery, which was the cooperative down there um, huh. in Memphis, where um, the owner had been lynched because his store had become so successful. Um, so, you know, he, he built a successful store. It was competing, out-competing white businesses in that, oh. that area. Oh. And, you know, they didn't want that competition there. So, the, you know, one, there's the dovetailing of the history of, uh, of capitalism and, and racism kind of, you know, intersecting here. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but, but two, you get this, uh, this, so Ida B. Wells relocates from Memphis to Chicago. Um, and when she gets here, um, what the Curious City segment was talking about was something called the Negro Fellowship League. So um, originally, when you had um, black migrants coming from the South to Chicago, um, the the YMCA's did not admit black men, um, you know, that, um, or black, black, anyone black, you know, effectively. Um, so they were segregated uh, settlement houses, effectively. Now, Ida B. Wells, seeing this, situ this situation, developed something called the Negro Fellowship League, where she actually created a network of, of homes um, where people who were migrating from the South actually had a place to stay, had a place to get on their feet. And, you know, um, in terms of thinking about a place as, as sort of um, a neighborhood, you know, as, as sort of a space where there's mutual aid, as, uh, where there's solidarity, this wasn't just transactions. This wasn't Airbnb. Mm -hmm. It wasn't just like, oh, okay, you know, you get to stay in the house and, you know, you're going to pay me $2 a week, you know, and mm -hmm. that's how you're going to, we're going to get by. This was, hey, you know, you're going to stay here. You're going to get on your feet. Um, you know, maybe you're going to get some employment. Um, but ultimately, you, you recognize that you were being knitted into a tribe that had um, response where you had responsibilities, you know, they call them in cooperatives, roles and responsibilities. And your responsibility was that when you got on your feet, you had to make sure that you lifted someone else up, right? You know, lifting as we climb, um, which is the name of a text, you know, um, recently by uh, Miriam Kaba and Essence McDowell. Um, but, you know, it's an it, 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 historic black slogan, you know, lifting as we climb. Um, but effectively, this Negro Fellowship League was one of those sort of mutual aid spaces that was about knitting together the relationships in a neighborhood so that you could be, you had a space to support the people who did, who had less or who, who, who oh. could not, um, you know, uh, lift themselves up. Great that, point. That Great point. Moment. Yep. So. <clears throat> That's good. That's good. You know, um, anyone coming to your uh, Facebook page, Mike, would see something that reminds me of Solidarity Hall. I don't know, if, did you notice this, Pete? There's a kind of a gallery of figures. We do this kind of thing at Solidarity Hall too. We like to learn from these older writers, you know? I mean, we just kind of put these things together with, with our activism. You have four figures on your Facebook page. 
I recognized Ralph Ellison. It took me a while. I finally figured out who Steve Biko was. I have no idea who the other two were, but I thought maybe you could just tell us about these influences. And I know you're a writer. I, I was wondering if you grew up in a family that of readers by any chance or g- give us some of that. Uh, yes, I certainly did grow up in a family of readers. Uh-huh. Uh, my mother is uh, a longtime aspiring writer. She she never did actually publish, um, hmm. you know, so perhaps, you know, she'll she'll one day give me the manuscript and, um, you wow. know, I'll, 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 I'll get it published for her. But, um, yeah, my, my mother, you know, longtime reader, had lots of bookshelves. You know, I, I had, you know, that World Book Encyclopedia collection, you know, and it had the blue spine. So um, yeah, I've I've long time been someone who was who was told you know when um, I didn't know something you know go look it up in the encyclopedia go look it up in the dictionary. We had you know a current news a news night you know sometimes where you sit sit down and read the paper. So mm-hmm. um, you know I I did get an early kick you know in terms of just being able to go to a text and kind of find some things and and engage in the the language of ideas. And so the figures that I've got um, you know listed there. Um, so yes, you've mentioned Ralph Ellison. Um, now Ralph Ellison, I actually did not read in my, my formative years. Um, I actually read in my adulthood, um, Invisible Man and Shadow and Act. Um, and you know, I mean, two certainly very impactful texts, you know, Invisible Man just kind of engaging in some ways the, the sort of double consciousness and the veil idea that Du Bois, you know, uh, speaks to, um, being that what does it feel like to be um, of, of, a, of, a, of an ethnicity and of, of a background, you know, that is rendered invisible in the nation of their birth, right? Um, and, and, and then, you know, how, is it, how does it feel to kind of engage life in that way? How, is it, how, does, how do you navigate the world in that space? Um, so that, that's uh, certainly, you know, the impact of uh, Invisible Man. And then Shadow and Act, you know, the book of essays that Ellison did. I think, you know, uh, he's, he's the best in um, you know, and, and that actually has an essay that speaks to uh, the quandary of being at the time, I think it was the, the shadow of a Negro writer or something like that. But, um, you know, just this idea that, you know, we are trying to be people who appreciate the written word, who are trying to be writers, but we're also in a space where we're having to engage, having to engage um, this this history of race, and you know, so we're we're having to be representative of of our, of our background, but we're also trying to be representative of our ideas and the sort of challenges that you go through in terms of being able to do that uh, successfully. Um, so you know, Ellison was certainly impactful for me. Um, Steve Biko, of course, being um, the uh, revolutionary in South Africa, um, you know, during the sort of uh, the, the uprising there, and um, you know, um, having the, the text I write what I like, you know, being another book of essays that that kind of speak to uh, the challenges of um, of being in a company, uh, of being in a country rather that's going through its sort of colonialism un- unshackling. Um, so that's certainly an impactful impactful for me. Um, Hoyt W. Fuller. Hoyt W. Fuller is uh, probably the least well-known figure. Yeah. Um, and Hoyt W. Fuller was, was the editor of um, Black World and Negro Digest. How did you come um, across this guy? I've never heard of this guy. He's, in, he's a Chicagoan, right? He's a Chicagoan. And, and, and um, he's, a, he's, a, he's, a very, he's an essential figure in the history of Chicago authorship and Chicago writing. Um, and at near the end of his life, he was uh, presiding over something called Obasi, or the Organization of Black American Culture. Um, the Organization of Black American Culture was a home for writers in Chicago um, that actually spawned um, the likes of Gwendolyn Brooks, wow. um, you know, that, that um, Haki Mahabudi or Don, formerly Donnell Lee. 
um, you know, and, and, and loads of just a, a, a rich tradition of, of other writers, lots of people who came out of third world press. Um, uh, and so uh, Ahoy W. Fuller was effectively both an editor, but he was also a mentor to a lot of these writers. Um, and, and then in terms of the, the two publications that he was the, ed the lead editor of, um, Negro Digest and Black World, um, those were two Johnson publications. So Johnson, of course, uh, being oh, yeah. uh, Ebony Magazine and, yeah. and, you know, a host of others. Um, and so, so Hoyt W. Fuller is one of those figures that's a shadow, a, a, a shadow to all of the ideas of a generation, you know, of, of, of two or three decades um, of writers um, and, and, uh, and, and black life in, uh, in Chicago and in, in, the, in the U.S. Um, and he wrote one full text in, in his life called Journey to Africa, which um, involved him making a retreat. You know, he, he was, um, it was during the period where um, the race riots were happening in the 60s, hmm. um, the 60s. And so he, he just kind of had to get off of the shores. And he ended up, you know, um, going on, on a tour of uh, North and, you know, some, and West, North, Northwest and East Africa. Um, and so he kind of talks about visiting some of these places that are, again, in the throes of post-colonialism. So they're mm -hmm. throwing off their colonial ties, um, you know, rejecting the French and, you know, and the British and, you know, various other um, colonial powers. And, and, these, and he kind of talks about the connection between Black people in America and, and you know, and, and those on the African continent and the relationship. And, and you know, at the end, sort of his closing sen sentiment is just that, you know, um, Black people in America will not be free until Africa is free. Um, so, mm -hmm. you know, there's, there's certainly a story to be told I, I don't think his story is ever fully told because he does not have a formal biography and no one's ever written one about him, but I think he's one of the, the tremendous writers to kind of know. Um, and, and similarly with this uh, final figure, which is uh, Hubert Harrison. Mm -hmm. um, and Hubert Harrison uh, was a, 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 le a contemporary of Garvey. Um, mm -hmm. So he, I, I discovered him during a period of time um, where I was, you know, exploring the ideas of atheism and agnosticism, um, and specifically their connection with, uh, with, with Black history and Black lineage. And um, he's one of these figures that during this period, um, you know, in the 30s, um, he's, uh, he's a socialist, um, he's, a, he's an atheist, and he's uh, a lead lecturer in, the ha in Harlem. He's, he's, a, he's a lead radical lecturer in Harlem. Um, you know, I, I think um, his his speeches were even more well attended, you know, I mean, earlier on than Garvey. Um, and, and Garvey actually attended a few of his lectures, it's kind of leading up to the launching of UNIA. Um, that's Marcus Garvey, for those who might might be listening, might not know that last name. But um, so he's, he's also another one of these tremendously, tremendous figures who was, um, who was undercovered until such time as um, Jeffrey Peary um, wrote a text on him um, that kind of charted not only his sort of biography, but then kind of, you know, uh, pulled, some, pulled down some the text from some of his lectures and uh, some of his speaking. But, you know, he's, he's essentially considered um, in that text or named in that text as the father of, of, of Harlem radicalism or the father of black radicalism even, because again, you know, he, he actually knew a lot of these figures during, the, during that, that period in the 30s, um, such as Garvey, such as Randolph. Um, he had an impact on a lot of these figures and, you know, um, and, and so, it, it, it's a, it's a, it's one of those essential figures. So these are four essential figures that are informing both my, my writing, that are informing both my work and my activism, um, and that are informing my, my philosophy, my personal philosophy. Even. Very cool. Very cool. Let's see. Is, go ahead, Pete. Oh, you go for, you go first, Elias. <laughs> I just, I just had a quick question. Um, 
I'm wondering whether you've got a read on anything going on in terms of this new activity and the faith community. And what I'm really wondering about, you know, uh, Obama got trained off a grant which came from the Archdiocese of Chicago, Cardinal Bernardin, or at least that was a piece of it. Um, I, I just am wondering whether anymore there is much intersection, whether it's Catholic, Lutheran, Jewish, you name it, uh, going on to the degree that we would hope there might be, given you know our situation. What do you see on the ground in terms of any kind of interfaith coalitions or the possibilities for it? Um, well, you know, I, my early history in Chicago, I, I arrived in Chicago in 99, and one of the early projects that I was engaged in was what I called an interfaith community organizing project. Hmm. Effectively, I was in an all-denominational organization, mm -hmm. and we were attempting to engage with, uh, with churches and mosques and majids and, and you know, and, and um, just various religious organizations to, um, to figure out ways that we could actually work together, strategize together. Um, and, and, and essentially, our, our main, goal, main target, our main goal was to kind of engage the youth um, in these institutions. But, you know, just recognizing that the challenge was that these institutions did not really have um, real strong strategies for how to get at the youth, how to communicate to the youth. They maybe, maybe they didn't have street teams, as, as it were. You know, that's something that's a sort of hip-hop term. But, I mean, effectively, street teams, just people who were going out and really engaging the youth yeah. in ways that were meaningful and impactful to those young people. Um, so... You know, I, I don't know um, in terms of, um, I, I, I'm not actually involved in much interfaith organizing work, so it, it's hard for me to give a read of the city itself. Um, there are some promising strands. Um, I'm, I'm actually working on a housing cooperative initiative um, with uh, some folks in Garfield Park, uh, hmm. specifically uh, out of the New Church Movement. Um, Apostle Steve Stoltz there is, uh, is a lead figure. Um, but hmm. they are... You know, um, uh, Apostle Stoltz is very invested in this, um, in the writing and the work of Mondragon and of uh, Father, wow. Father Don, yeah, Don Jose uh, Maria Arismendi Arrieta. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, that has actually informed um, the sort of ways that that he's able to engage the cooperative as a, as a faith initiative. You know, so he, he he's, he's kind of you know written a series of uh, of, of lectures or, or speaking and. Uh, um, you know, work that actually talks to how the cooperatives, you know, kind of roll through the gospel. Cool. Um, and, you know, and all, although he's sort of doing a lot of work with, you know, secular organizations, Metropolitan Planning Council, and, and a housing coalition on the West Side, um, wow. all of that is informed by, you know, some of these writings from, uh, from Father, uh, from Don Jose Maria, um, from the Catholic Social Doctrine. Mm -hmm. And so I, I think that there's an important lineage for the, the, the sort of church to draw upon to kind of root itself back into the solidarity economy yeah. in, that, in that way. Um, you said it. But, but, you know, it, it's definitely trying, it, you know, it's trying to figure out who to talk to that actually gets them to kind of establish, reestablish that vein. <clears throat> um, but, you know, there, there's also, um, you know, I, I, I host um, a bi or co-facilitate rather a bi-weekly um, cooperation, collaboration, study and working mm -hmm. group. And that is hosted at a place called the breathing room, which is a, a mutual aid center. And that breathing room, um, it has space on loan from Sukasa, a Catholic worker, um, oh, yeah. which, you no know, kidding. kind of is housed next door. 
so I mean, I, I think that there's some 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 tangent of, of, of relationship to faith communities. Yeah. Um, but there certainly could be more ways that, that you know the faith community could see themselves as in, interacting and engaging the social movements uh, that are actually happening out in the world at the moment. Wow, great stuff. You know, Pete uh, happens to be Catholic also. It, it, I guess our contribution is turning out to be we come up with these great ideas, we hand them off, and then we stand back and watch non-Catholics make them happen. You know? <laughs> Church is it's all. just driving me crazy. It's driving yeah. me crazy. You know? Amazing. Uh, I'm very, I want to jump back before we close out uh, to some of the earlier themes, which are, I'm very interested, you know, there's a lot of writing um, in the kind of political science literature around kind of hunky-dory civic life stuff, you know. Um, I'm a big fan of Robert Putnam's, which says, you know, the clubs in your town, we need to get more people joining clubs, we need to get more people bowling together, we need to get uh, more people kind of participating in civic life. And one interesting thing about the solidarity economy is that it acknowledges that, you know, in the history of civic life, it's not just the soft interactions of social fun it's in it's uh embedded within the economy itself and that you know you look at even the civic groups that putnam mentions and you know a lot of these like elks lodges and odd fellows lodges they had rotating credit they had um health insurance um and so there's never really been a civic life without the teeth of like actual economic production and I'd love to hear a bit about um, your thoughts on kind of the relationship between community building and actually getting, you know, creating wealth and, and producing things um, and, and the importance of their intersection. Yes, yeah, um, that is definitely a large question and an important one. Um, you know, and I was actually, so I had an opportunity to, to visit um, Asheville, North Carolina for the New Economy Coalition um, annual mm -hmm. member meeting. And in Asheville, North Carolina, they have a community land trust there that's recently been awarded a million dollars in sort of capital wow. um, for, for capital acquisition costs. So they still have to kind of figure out how to work up their operating budget, and they still have to do sort of member drives um, and kind of finance that in, in their own ways. But you know, once they actually get the membership, then they have the one, one million in capital acquisition from the city. That is, um, so this is from the city budget um, that they can kind of use to acquire property. Um, but, and, and so the, the reason that I sort of mentioned that is that um, while I was down in Asheville, one of the things I've been co uh, um, commenting on is that um, as people were talking about each other's work, we had a couple of panels that we attended there with the folks in Asheville, and a Asheville has actually autonomously developed um, a, a regional uh, Western North Carolina New Economy Coalition. Um, wow. You know, essentially they had attended one of the common bounds and they kind of talked about, hey, you know, we need to have one of these locally. So they built their own regional hub. And then the New Economy Coalition was like, hey, that's great. We should come down and visit you all. Um, and so when they talk, but when they talked about each other's work, um, you had both, and, 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 you know, these are not necessarily folks who share a faith tradition. You had folks of diver divergent and different ethnicities there represented. Um, so you had lots of different communities converging around an economic um, methodology but that, you know, had different backgrounds that they brought to it. But because they had this shared economic philosophy, this, these shared values um, around, around what they wanted for their, their, their communal lives, um, they had ways that they could kind of intersect and work together. And when they talked about each other's work, 
it wasn't just, it wasn't like, you know, um, they're giving compliments to um, the impact and they're saying, you know, this uh, community has saved 10 homes and, you know, and it's it, it, it caused, you know, $30,000 of impact. But they really talked about their work in ways that felt like they, they, they had a great love for each other. They had a great effect on each other. And, you know, Eric Liu, when he visited Chicago and he kind of talked about um, the Citizen University methodology um, or the, the, the National Civic Collaboratory that he does, you know, he, he says that the Civic Collaboratory is trying to build bonds of, of trust and affection. Um, and so, you know, ultimately for me, um, the sort of economic vision um, that we have for our communities um, is rooted in wanting for each other, um, you know, mm -hmm. a very sort of similar, a similar sort of good life or the buen vivir, you know, yep. um, as they talk about it in Latin America. Yep. Yep. We can kind of get this vision that says that, you know, um, we may not all have a vision of what the good life looks like, but we all want better lives for one another. Um, and we, we, we know that if we kind of bond together, if we connect <clears throat> to one another, um, then we can, we can find what that looks like for our community and we can find it together. We can root it in place. So, you know, ultimately we're trying to get a, a vision of a good life that's connected to the place that we live and not something that, you know, is, is mobile that can kind of, you know, it's like a store, you can pick it up and put it anywhere. But ultimately, what does it look like for us here? Um, and, and yes, and you know, I think that that ensures that um, associations, that organizations actually have an institutional life because, you know, ultimately, yes, people are connected to institutions that are able, that they're able to derive some, some material benefit from in their lives. And, you know, I mean, that material benefit is not always a paycheck, you know. I mean, again, we're looking for things that have a social good, that have an economic good, um, that have a civic good, um, you know, and, and, and that you really build strong associations that are able to stand the test of time and that, you know, are not given to, uh, uh, again, in fact, another, another um, uh, you know, uh, interview I was listening to was with Wade Rothke, um, who built an organization called ACORN, um, oh, yeah. or, or who kind of founded an organization called ACORN rather mm -hmm. than built, because, you know, as he will say, it, it was built by the membership. But, um, you know, when you, and, and ACORN stands for the Association for Community or, of Community Organizations for Reform now. Um, but, you know, what he will talk about in terms of um, the sort of latter stages of that organization, or what some people have found in the postmortem, is that once you got away from it being an organization of members who paid dues, you know, and I mean, you know, maybe modest dues, it could have been $5 or $10 a month or a week or something like that, um, but, you know, paid relatively modest dues. Once you got away from an organization that where members paid dues, for an organization that, you know, had a significant amount of money coming from foundations or coming from grants, um, uh -huh. it weakened the position of the organization. And that allowed them, you know, um, in this period around 2010, you know, 12 or something like that, to actually be attacked uh, ravenously by, you know, conservatives who said that this organization, you know, was, was uh, messing with the vote tallies, um, and, you know, and that they were, that they were mm -hmm. putting dead voters on the rolls. And that organization crumbled because it, its financial infrastructure crumbled. But if you want to build strong organizations, if you want to build strong associations, um, they have to be member-led. Ha there has to be deep member engagement. And they have to be member-supported. Um, you know, and ultimately, you know, people will support things that, again, that they see a material benefit coming to their lives from. Um, and, you know, and so that, that's how I think about that sort of relationship between the economic life, the civic life, and the social yep. life. <clears throat> that's good. It sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it, Pete? We've talked about similar organization building theories, I know, in the past. So that's, that yeah. sounds very much on the money. 
Yeah. And, and, and it, you know, as you were speaking, it made me think so strongly, you know, we have this crisis in civics where no one's joining civic groups. And if you add an economic and justice aspect to it, more people want to join. But we also have this crisis in economics, poverty alleviation and justice, where we have these um, kind of technocratic top down, you know, wonky groups trying to solve these problems and they're not solving it. But when you add a community civic participatory solidarity aspect, it actually solves the problems. And, and so the key is in mixing these two. Um, it, it's, it's both uh, the isolation crisis and the kind of uh, uh, managed, managed, allevi- managed technocratic kind of uh, problem solving crisis that never seems to solve any problems. Yes. Cool. Absolutely. Mike, great stuff. Final quick question. What is a cola nut? <laughs> Uh, the cola nut. Um, the cola nut is a a small tree nut um, that essentially you can derive cola from. So the same thing that's in oh, Coca Cola, or you know, so you can you can derive that that substance out of the cola nut. Um, but essentially, in West Africa, um, there are lots of different uses for the the cola nut. Um, you can consume it, you know, if you're on a long journey and you want to kind of stave off fatigue or kind of you know stim your appetite. Um, it has a lot. Of, it has caffeine in it. Um, so some people will take the nut, it's very bitter, and they'll put it in their jaw, and they'll just simply chew on the nut, you know, all day to kind of, you know, stave off the, the, the hunger. And you can see this in a, um, there's a, a black and white film called The Wagoner, um, you know, where a, a man in Senegal is driving a wagon all day, and he takes a, pa- a pocket of cola nuts with him. Um, but, you know, in, in West Africa, this cola nut not only has, you know, um, uh, has actually value, uh, you know, actual sort of material value, but it has a social value and it has, has sort of values embedded in it, um, which are that, you know, when you're when in evil culture, when you want to build a relationship of hospitality and a beneficial trading relationship, you'll present the next village or the next chief with a basket of cola nuts. Hmm. Um, and when you're trying to welcome someone into your house, um, the thing that you'll do is you'll sit down together and you'll break this cola nut in half and each of you will consume a piece of it. Um, and so, you know, this, the cola nuts collaborative, you know, our, our name is rooted in trying to help people get beyond a money that has just value, you know, just has material value, something that has a larger sort of social value mm. and a larger sort of values that, that sit behind it. So, you know, that's the cola nut collaborative's uh, root. Very cool. Very that cool. is beautiful. Good. Great stuff. Mike, this is a pleasure. Uh, hey, we're going to try to keep up with you. And we'll look for another occasion and maybe uh, catch up again. How's that sound? Oh, yes. That, that, that would be great. You know, Elias, Pete, it's been certainly a pleasure talking with you. And, and I look forward to it in the future. Great. Be well. Thanks so much, Mike. Peace. All right. Bye. Be well. Peace.